Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Virtual Vaccine Summit, G7 leaders to pledge billions of dollars of help for poor countries. Facebook fallout, global backlash over its block on news in Australia. And water warning, Texas faces more drinking water shortages even as power slowly returns. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on this busy Friday. Let's begin with a look at the markets. U.S. stocks look set to bounce after an across-the-board pullback on Thursday, driven in part by weaker-than-expected jobless numbers and concerns about the economic effects of the U.S. winter freeze. Oil and gas companies are slowly restarting production after severe storms knocked out a significant chunk of their output. Economic growth in focus in Europe as well. Germany's factory index has just hit three-year highs. But fresh lockdowns are pressuring U.K. retail, with sales falling more than 8 percent last month. The pound, however, rising to three-year highs as investors bet on stronger growth later this year. Staying in the U.K., the Supreme Court delivering a blow to Uber today, ruling that its drivers must be classified as workers entitled to benefits. Uber down about 2% in pre-market trading. Much more on this later in the show. Shares of carmaker Renault are falling, too, after warning that the global chip shortage will impact production and slow its turnaround plans. There's a lot going on. Let's get straight to the drivers. And let's get right to today's virtual G7 meeting, where coronavirus and equal access to vaccines is sure to be top of the agenda. Joining me now with all the details is CNN's diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson. Nick, great to see you. Uh, So what is your thinking here? Do you think there could be a collective message that could come out of this meeting with these world leaders, even with this being more of a preparatory meeting, the real summit happening in June? Absolutely. And and I think there's a real need to send that message. Now, the, the world heard from the UN Secretary General just earlier in the week saying, look, um, this vaccine rollout around the world is not equitable. He said, you know, there are 10 countries that have had 75% of all the vaccines given to people so far. He said there are 130 countries that don't have it yet. So what we're going to be hearing here is, number one, President Biden sort of stepping back on the world stage for the first time and saying, we're going to support the World Health Organization. We're going to support their COVAX program, which is to get vaccines to poorer nations. The idea to get, um, you know, 20 percent of the need of the 92 poorest nations by the end of this year. And he's going to say, I'm committing two billion dollars to that, plus another two billion if everyone else steps up and does their thing. We're going to hear likely from the French president uh, who's going to say, look, we the nations that have these vaccines now, 
We've got big stockpiles uh, coming. Essentially, the UK, for example, has ordered 420 million doses, has 66 million people. The United States has 600 million doses uh, coming on order. So there's a space here for these richer nations to give a small percentage, Macron is saying, four or five percent, tens of millions of doses to poorer nations. Part of the thinking here is these Western nations are looking over their shoulders at what China and Russia are doing, which is giving away their vaccines to poorer nations, which is bringing in some, you know, as you would imagine, um, some credibility around the world. So Western powers who are very rich, who had the vaccines, have got to look at that. And they are. And the other thing that we hear from Boris Johnson today is say, look, let's get ready for the next pandemic. Let's get ready for the next variants that may be coming. We produce this vac these vaccines in just 300 days. The next one, he said, we need to have ready in 100 days. So There's going to be a challenge to be better, faster off the mark next time as well, Alison. What about a specific message maybe coming from President Biden himself? This is his first step onto the world stage, virtual, albeit. But the, his first time stepping onto the world stage after uh, President Trump has been in, uh, many would say, uh, who had a more acrimonious uh, bedside manner. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of patients over here in Europe who would sort of feel have felt that bedside manner. Um, yes, we're going to hear a couple of times from President Biden. He, he will be speaking at the G7 then shortly after he'll be speaking at uh, the, what's known as the Munich Security Conference. Normally, like a gathering of, of, of former world leaders, key players, current world leaders crammed into a tiny hotel in Munich. Um, uh, President Biden's been there many times in the past, but it's virtual this year. But he's going to be giving a message there, which is basically America back today's then John Kerry will be speaking there as well a new sort of climate change czar uh, that, that President Biden appointed and the message from both will be United States is back uh, President Biden will be talking about uh, the importance of upholding democracies the importance of, of, of diplomacy to solve the world's problems this is the day where not only the United States sort of firms up its real commitment to the WHO with those billions of dollars for COVAX but also rejoins the uh, climate change accord uh, that President Biden set out first day in office. That actually physically happens today. Um, and he's going to talk probably about Iran as well, where there's sort of diplomatic openings there, where there's been a very tense standoff over Iran's breaking of the terms of the, of the uh, internationally agreed nuclear treaty. So, um, you know, a lot going on and a lot coming from President Biden. And it will be. Um, the United States is back. We're a force for good. We're re-engaging where President Trump wasn't. And Hopefully, uh, he'll hope that his bedside manager manner is more palatable now. Okay, Nick Robertson, great detail about this meeting. Great talking with you. Thanks for joining us. Facebook's decision to block news on its Australian site has sparked a global backlash. A British lawmaker said the company was trying to bully the Australian government. That sentiment was echoed by officials in Germany, the U.S., Canada, and France. Brian Stelter joins me now live with this. You know, uh, Brian, good to see you. You know, Facebook's decision is really being called uh, one of the most idiotic but deeply disturbing corporate moves of our lifetimes. Why uh, this backlash against Facebook? Yes, and this is not just in Australia now. As you said, it's in the United Kingdom, it's in the United States. 
lawmakers around the world reacting to Facebook's blockade of news in Australia, uh, basically prohibiting publishers from sharing links on Facebook in Australia. These lawmakers in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere are saying this is proof of Facebook's monopoly power. David Cicilline, a lawmaker here in the U.S., saying threatening to bring an entire country to its knees to agree to Facebook's terms is the ultimate admission of monopoly power. There are many regulators watching this case in Australia very carefully, wondering what they should do to hold Facebook accountable. Of course, all of this is fundamentally about how to finance news gathering around the world. Publishers have been pushing Facebook and Google to, to pony up to help them make up for some of what they lost in the Internet age. Rupert Murdoch's News Corp and others have been pushing for this. This morning's New York Post here in the, here in the U.S. has the, Mark Zuckerberg's face on the cover uh, with the whole world in his hands, calling this a Facebook, uh, a face-off, that is. So it, a lot of pressure on Facebook from a lot of different directions. But I think what Facebook is trying to do is set a marker in the ground and saying, we are not going to agree to what Australia is proposing. We don't see the world the same way you do, uh, and now it, it really is a face-off. We do know, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg did have a phone call overnight uh, with Australian officials. Perhaps some sort of deal in the works, but we don't know for sure. Yeah, the concern here could be that this could be precedent, you know, for other countries. Right. That is the overarching both fear and possibility and opportunity, depending on what way you look at it. For Facebook, it is a big fear. For Google, there's real concern as well. Google has been striking some deals with some publishers, trying to back away from the cliff, trying to avoid the drastic action that Facebook has taken. But, you know, to many tech executives, this has the feel of a shakedown. On the other hand, there are many publishers who feel like Facebook and Google have robbed them and have been robbing them for many years. And this feels like a reset moment in the relationship between publishers and big tech platforms. It will be interesting to hear what happens on that call that you talked about. Uh, Brian Stelter, great to talk with you. Thanks. In Washington, the powerful House Financial Services Committee grilling key players in the GameStop frenzy, including the CEO of Robinhood. Listen. I'm sorry for what happened. Um, I apologize. And I'm not going to say that Robinhood did everything perfect and that we haven't made mistakes in the past. But what, what I commit to is making sure that we improve from this, we learn from it, and we don't make the same mistakes in the future. And Matt Egan joins us live with more. You know, Matt, I was watching this and thinking this is the strangest financial services committee hearing I have, I think, ever seen. First, we had the uh, TV debut of Roaring Kitty, chalk with a picture of a kitten in back of him saying, uh, hang in there. And then, of course, uh, the members of Congress sitting there seemingly uh, with a lack of understanding about the rules of the road of what they were talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, Robin Hood in particular um, was treated like the problem child. And I think it's clear that Robin Hood's uh, business model is under siege right now. And we sort of heard a little bit of that clip um, before when, when the CEO, Vlad Tenev, was apologizing for some of the communications failures. Um, I think in particular, there were a lot of questions Allison, around payment for order flow, which is that controversial practice where Robinhood and other brokerages, they get paid to send their retail orders to high-speed trading firms like Citadel Securities. And, you know, that practice has made it dirt cheap, uh, even free to trade, uh, which is a great thing. But some of the lawmakers are worried that it's actually the Wall Street firms that are getting the better end of this deal. So watch this really interesting exchange between the Robinhood CEO and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
removing the revenues that you make from a payment for order flow uh, would cause the removal of free commissions. Doesn't that mean that trading on Robinhood isn't actually free to begin with because you're just hiding the cost, the cost in terms of potentially poor execution or the cost of lost rebates to your customers? So certainly, Congresswoman, Robinhood is a for-profit business and needs to generate some revenue to, to, to pay for the costs of running this business. So clearly, uh, this is going to be something that lawmakers are going to watch carefully. It would be very unpopular to do anything that makes it um, expensive to trade. I mean, it's free. H how do you take that away? But I do think that if nothing else, this hearing is going to provide some political cover for the regulators. And remember, there is a new top cop coming to Wall Street. Uh, the end of the Trump administration, which was obviously very deregulatory, has brought um, President Biden in. He has tapped Gary Gensler, who was Obama's toughest regulator to lead the SEC. And I do think Gary Gensler and the SEC are going to watch this space very closely. Now, I know there are still more hearings planned, Matt, uh, but do you see any regulation at all coming out of this? And if so, where do you see that happening? Well, Allison, there, there was a really interesting exchange um, between a uh, Republican congressman and the Robin Hood CEO, where Robin Hood finally admitted for the first time that they were very close to um, a disaster here. They said that um, they were requested, the clearinghouse had actually asked Robin Hood to put up about $3 billion early on the morning of January 28th during all that Reddit turmoil. And Robin Hood eventually got them to come down to $1.4 billion. They also ended up putting in all these restrictions. But the CEO, Vlad Tenev, he admitted for the first time that they did not have enough capital to meet that $3 billion request had that been the ultimate request. And, you know, the lawmakers said, listen, this this whole episode exposes a vulnerability in your business model and perhaps in the whole industry more broadly. So to your point, Allison, I think another area to look at for potential legislation or new regulation is around how much capital brokerages are supposed to and are required to actually hold. Because you don't want to see a situation where they don't have enough cash and they're forced to liquidate trades, which is actually apparently what almost happened at the end of January. And we will see how this unfolds in the next couple of hearings. Matt Egan, great talking with you. Thank you. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. After a devastating week of bitter cold temperatures, the lights are back on throughout most of Texas. But millions are now facing an escalating water crisis. More than 13 million people have been ordered to boil their drinking water. Others have no water at all and are resorting to desperate measures like boiling snow. The Mississippi governor has called this a slow-moving disaster, but it's one that's man-made and that's causing anger and frustration for so many. CNN's N Natasha Chen joins me now from Houston. Natasha, what are you seeing? Yeah, Allison, a lot of frustration and anger, as you were saying, and fear from people who don't really know where to go in situations like this. Uh, as you said, the power is starting to come back on. We are in a building that is a furniture showroom where the owner has allowed people to actually sleep here uh, for, you know, to stay warm. In the last several nights, they had several hundred people each night. Uh, they were feeding people breakfast. But overnight, we saw fewer than 100 people here. And that's a good sign that power is coming back on for a lot of folks, but still water is a main issue.
no power, heat, or water. We've got flash lights, we can't recharge the batteries. There's no propane in the area to be found. Food supplies running low. It's all about survival right now until it starts getting warm. And homes destroyed. It's like complete shock. It's like one of your worst nightmares. Hundreds of thousands of Texans are waking to a harsh reality this morning. As of now, we're managing, you know, but the gravity of the situation becomes more apparent by the minute. In Houston, people are waiting in line to fill up buckets of water from a spigot in a park to take home, while others here stay warm within this furniture store, which offered residents a place to eat and sleep. About 13 million Texans are under a boil water advisory, and nearly 200,000 households are still in the dark. And it could take days for all to get power back. We need to figure out what went wrong in the way that the Texas energy grid is run. Uh, But right now, there's still a lot of work to do in response and in recovery. Texas Governor Greg Abbott promised to reform and investigate the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is in charge of 90 percent of the state's power grid. I'm taking responsibility for the current status of ERCOT. Again, I find what has happened unacceptable. With dangerously cold temperatures still in the region, frustration here is growing. Firefighters need to truck their own water to this blaze at a San Antonio apartment complex since the hydrants there were frozen. The conditions delay the delivery of coronavirus vaccines in Texas and other hard-hit states. We can't have people riding on, getting on the roads and going into work and boxing them and d- delivering them through UPS or FedEx, uh, either to sites like in Texas where uh, they're not open yet, We're going to keep these vaccines safe and sound, and then we're going to get them out to people and catch up just as soon as the weather allows. A group of protesters welcomed Texas Senator Ted Cruz home, returning back to Houston after facing backlash for leaving the crisis for a family vacation in Cancun. Cruz confirmed the trip after photos emerged on social media Wednesday showing the senator boarding a plane. The plan had been to stay through the weekend with the family. Um, that, that, that was the plan. Look, it, it was obviously a mistake. And in hindsight, I, I wouldn't have done it. Some local leaders slammed Cruz. Well, it's certainly much warmer where he's going. Uh, let me just put it. Let me just put it like that. I mean, I think he threw in the towel on Texas. Um, you know, this is a situation where it's all hands on deck. Houston is among uh, the parts of the state that are currently under a boil water notice that's likely to remain through the weekend. And that's really what people are focused on now, waiting for that water to come back. In this building, it's just still trickling in. uh, And and really that and the burst pipes, this is all going to take quite some time for recovery, Allison. Yeah, and needing power just to boil that water. That's the irony there. Natasha Chen, thanks so much. A major announcement from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. They have told the Queen they will not return as working members of the British royal family. That's according to Buckingham Palace. The palace says it's saddened by the decision. Still to come on First Move, the one-shot vaccine. Johnson & Johnson is poised for launch. We discuss health equity and vaccine supplies with a former FDA commissioner and J&J board member. And perseverance pays off. NASA's rover makes it to Mars. Stay with us for an update. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks remain on track for a higher open. Tech looks like it's set for the biggest bounce after a more than half a percent decline on Thursday. 
Uh, economic bellwether Deer is up 6% in the pre-market after a big earnings beat. The heavy machinery maker is raising its full-year forecast, too, on expectations for stronger construction activity. And the seemingly unstoppable Bitcoin rally continues today. The cryptocurrency closing in on a new milestone, 53,000. Its market cap is fast approaching $1 trillion. JP Morgan is warning that the current Bitcoin price is, quote, unsustainable. President Biden is unveiling billions of dollars in aid to boost the World Health Organization's COVAX effort. The vaccine initiative aims to get doses to low and middle income countries. French President Emmanuel Macron is also voicing concerns about those left behind, telling the Financial Times newspaper that Europe and the U.S. should give 5 percent of their vaccine supplies to developing countries. Joining me now on this is Dr. Mark McClellan. He is formerly an FDA commissioner. He's now director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. And he's an independent director on the board of Johnson & Johnson. Great to, great to see you. Good to be with you, Allison. So, doctor, do you think that the French president is right? Should Europe and the U.S., should they give 5% of their vaccine supplies to developing countries? Well, we're clearly going to need to provide a lot more support for low and middle income countries to get beyond this pandemic. We've got a long way to go. You uh, talked about the recent announcements from the Biden administration, $2 billion soon, $2 billion more coming to support the global vaccine purchase efforts. Remember, though, Allison, there are a couple of further problems there. One is the just the vaccine supply. Uh, some of our colleagues at Duke have been tracking vaccine availability, where doses are being produced, where they're scheduled to go. Uh, there's still a big gap. Uh, we're at full capacity operations and trying to recruit more manufacturers manufacturing capacity is challenging. The vaccines are, are complex to manufacture. And the second problem for developing countries is going to be getting those shots in arms. Uh, some of these vaccines are, <clears throat> excuse me, not so easy to use. And we need an infrastructure support for these countries as well. Uh, the U.S. is going to end up, I think, providing a lot more vaccines. We're purchasing many vaccines now for the U.S. population. My guess is we're not going to end up needing all of them. That's going to add to the supply, too. But we've got a lot of work ahead to, uh, to meet those needs. Yeah. And one thing that may help is an announcement today that Pfizer or BioNTech say uh, it says it, it submitted new data to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to show that its COVID-19 vaccine can be stored at warmer temperatures. So this That's ideally right. could make it easier to distribute the Pfizer vaccine, right? That's right. That's going to help in the U.S. as we try to reach more hard to reach uh, communities, more rural areas. It's going to help hopefully around the world. I think you're going to see some more innovation in these mRNA vaccines as well. This is a new technology. The uh, first round of these vaccines was really designed in an effort to get out the vaccines quickly so we could start getting shots in arms. Now that people have more time to look at the technologies for keeping those vaccines stable, I think you're going to see next generation versions of these vaccines that are easier to store, easier to distribute, easier to use. Now, Johnson & Johnson specifically has is a one-dose vaccine, but we're hearing that it could end up being a two-dose regimen. That's according to uh, White House advisor Andy Slavitt. What do you know about this? 
Uh, J&J is doing a study now of a second dose for the vaccine, as you saw, as uh, people have seen in the early results, which the FDA is reviewing very closely right now. They're going to have a public meeting with their independent expert advisory group in just uh, uh, 10, 10 days or less than 10 days. It's coming up very soon before the end of the month. Um, that vaccine showed very good protection, uh, no hospitalizations, very good protection against serious cases. But there are continuing questions as we see more variants emerge, uh, also about whether uh, uh, another dose could even have a bigger impact on mild cases. Although that's not really the focus for these vaccines. You know, this is really all about preventing deaths, preventing hospitalizations, preventing the serious consequences that go along with COVID. Uh, but we'll learn more from the study that's underway now with results coming out in a few months. Uh, I still think the most important thing now, Allison, is trying to get as many shots in arms of these multiple uh, effective vaccines as we can. Now, Pfizer has begun a uh, international study to evaluate the safety and efficacy of vaccines on pregnant women. It also brings to question when will, um, you know, younger people, teenagers and kids be able to get their vaccines? Any idea there? Well, the initial studies focused on adults and some young adults. The early Pfizer studies went down to age 16 and showed uh, very high levels of safety and effectiveness there. Now we're looking at the additional population. So uh, it's not unusual to delay studies in pregnant women until you've got a really good understanding of the safety of a medical product. Now that we do, and there have been a lot of pregnant women who have been vaccinated who are being tracked right now, not seeing any uh, obvious uh, safety issues there. So now's the time to do that study in pregnant women. It's not going to be as large. It's not going to take as long. It's going to let us know for sure whether there are any unusual safety effects and whether the immune response really benefits the mother and maybe has some protective effects for the, uh, for the uh, unborn baby as well. And similarly, Allison, there are studies underway now in uh, in children now all the way down to age five. Now, those are kids have a lower risk from COVID. So, again, they weren't in the first round of studies, but we're seeing studies now to help us understand what's the right dose. Uh, is the vaccine really safe in that group, too? Did they mount a strong immune response? The studies won't have to be as big. They probably won't take as long. So we'll have more evidence on all of those populations in the next few months as well. And one quick question about crisis management, because we're seeing hiccups already with the weather issues uh, that we're seeing here in the U.S. affecting these vaccines getting into arms. Uh, It has had a big effect this week. Really horrible weather conditions in many parts of the U.S., especially in Texas. So obviously not easy to even get the vaccines there, let alone open up vaccination clinics. That's depressed the amount of vaccines uh, being administered in many parts of the country this week. I think that's going to pick back up next week as the weather gets better. We've got a little bit of extra supply to put back into those areas now. We're probably going to hit uh, 2 million or more doses being delivered per day in the United States next week as we continue to increase vaccine uh, availability and deal with this uh, backlog in some parts of the country. Dr. Mark McClellan, director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. Thanks for joining us. And you're watching First Move. The Market Open is next. (music) 
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading day of the week. And we've got a higher open across the board. Strong factory numbers in Japan and parts of Europe are helping boost investor sentiment. But services activity remains subdued in those regions due to COVID-related restrictions. Expectations for stronger growth and perhaps higher inflation continue to boost global bond yields. U.S. 10-year yields are on the rise again today and near one-year highs. Bond yields in Europe and Japan, those are higher as well. Brian Belsky joins me now. He is the Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Great to see you, Brian. Thanks for having us, Allison. So it's interesting. You see this just the market is just running up, running up, running up. Is the market ignoring inflationary pressures? It's a great question. and It's one that we've been uh, uh, countering, uh, actually, the last several weeks. And when we wrote our piece, Allison, uh, in November detailing our outlook for 2021, we said that uh, as long as 10-year treasuries uh, stay below 1.5 percent, Uh, I think uh, that all will be contained. You have to remember that we've been waiting for 39 years uh, for inflation to come back. It's really been since 1982 uh, when that was squashed. And a a little over 1% print in PPI and a plus 5% print in retail sales from a longer-term perspective uh, is not that big of a deal. It's just, I think, the relative side of things and how you introduced it with respect to year year highs, of course, year highs. You think about what was happening 12 months ago. So we're not concerned about inflation. Uh, I think the Fed is going to be on hold for several more quarters, if not years. And I think much of this has been overplayed. But is the stock market in a bubble? No. Uh, and I think that's a scary term and, and full of rhetoric and fear. I think there are certain stocks or asset classes uh, that are in bubbles, uh, but the stock market is not. And in fact, we published a report this week that talks about the broadening out of performance really the last several months, which is very positive. Intrastock correlations, meaning how the stocks are related to each other, are very low, meaning you want to buy stocks not ETFs and sectors. And so we continue to believe that we're ushering into a stock picking phase like we haven't seen since the mid 90s. Okay, then what are the biggest risks to the rally then? I think biggest risks to the rally uh, are everybody uh, becoming super bullish. And I don't see that, Allison, because the media is negative. Uh, we love to we love to talk about bubbles. We love to talk about corrections. We love to get hedge funds on the air and talk about how smart they are. Uh, but how much how much money they've lost, people don't really want to talk about that. And how they've underperformed, people don't really want to talk about that. So I don't think people are bullish, Allison. And I do believe that investors are underinvested in U.S. stocks. And so that's why we like financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, and materials in the U.S for the next 12 to 18 months, but we would still maintain those big tech and big communication services positions for the next three to five years. Okay, about six months ago, you had reportedly said Bitcoin is the sexy thing to go to and that you don't base your investments on sex appeal. Bitcoin hitting that uh, 53,000 mark, uh, do you still feel the same way? Yeah, we'd much rather base our decisions on process and discipline versus sex appeal and sizzle. Uh, this is a, an instrument. I'm not even going to call it an asset because I don't think it has any kind of intrinsic value 
that's all about supply and demand. And all you have to do is go back and look to 2018 and 2019 when the demand went away and saw how fast that dropped. Now, again, it's sexy. It's exciting. Bitcoin's in a bubble. I, I can say that. I think that's very clear. Wait, wait, wait. That's that retor- chase it, that you're using rhetoric. Hold on, Brian. You accuse me of saying bubble <laughs> is rhetoric. You're doing the same thing. And let me just say it's becoming more acceptable. Okay, we look at BN- BNY Mellon, uh, look at MasterCard, even Tesla. Um, what say you to that, uh, legitimizing uh, the currency? Well, one, uh, I'll use it. Uh, you can use a bubble on individual assets, not just the market, Allison. So, yeah, one bubble talking to another bubble in terms of Tesla and Bitcoin. They're uh, they're they're good. They're good bedfellows. Let's just say that. Okay, Brian Belsky, great talking with you today. We'll see if I, we can move the needle on Bitcoin the next time I talk with you. <laughs> Thanks, Allison. Thank you. A major blow to Uber, the U.K. Supreme Court ruling that that Uber must classify its drivers as workers, not independent contractors. Uber now may be forced to give benefits to its drivers, including a minimum wage and paid time off. Scott McLean is live outside the British Supreme Court with this one. Great to see you. You know, some may say this is uh, this is finally happening for these these workers at Uber. And but you look at what this means for the company. The UK is one of Uber's most important markets. So, you know, what does this decision do to the company's business model? Yeah, and Allison, the UK is important to Uber because it's one of the few markets where it's actually profitable. So immediately, this ruling only applies to the 20 or so plaintiffs who originally brought the claim, but it also likely will quickly apply to thousands of other drivers who were on the app in 2016 when the case was actually brought. And beyond that, it is also likely to fundamentally change Uber's business model in this country. Being classed as a worker rather than an independent contractor will entitle these drivers to things like minimum wage and uh, paid time off. The court's unanimous ruling ultimately came down to its determination that Uber was not merely a booking agent between uh, a driver and a rider, but it was tightly controlling the terms of the transactions, uh, not allowing drivers any room to negotiate their own terms or their own prices like you would expect an independent contractor to do. The Supreme Court also ruled, Allison, that workers should be paid so long as they are logged on to the app and willing and able to accept any fares that come their way. That means that Uber and other companies who operate in similar ways are likely going to have to pay these drivers even for the time that they are sitting in their cars in between uh, rides. The Supreme Court is the final word on this case, but Uber says that it's going to wait and see how the employment tribunal where this case was originally brought actually applies the case before it makes any changes. So don't expect anything today. But beyond that, it may also, it says, try to find some other legal avenue in order to fight this out even longer, at least that part of the ruling. In a statement, the company said, quote, we expect the court's decision, or we respect, excuse me, the court's decision, which focused on a small number of drivers who used the app in 2016, Since then, we have made some significant changes to our business, guided by drivers every step of the way. The plaintiff in this case, one of the lead ones, Yassine Aslam, though, urged the company to simply follow the law. Listen. You would get people that are in a situation, they're so desperate, they'll work for £2 an hour, they'll work for £3 an hour, but that doesn't mean it's right. We're not here to tell Uber to shut down. We're not here against technology. The point is the law needs to be obeyed. And someone like the government needs to do a better job in enforcing these laws.
So as I mentioned, don't expect any overnight changes to how the op actually operate, operates in this country. It may take some further legal action to actually force the company to comply fully. Now, the most likely scenario is that Uber will eventually in the future have to severely cut down the number of drivers it actually allows on the app to make sure that there's sufficient demand so that each of them can be ensured that they make at least the minimum wage after their costs are taken into account. Meanwhile, for the plaintiffs in this case, they expect to make about 14,000 US dollars each uh, from the ruling. But after six years, the uh, primary plaintiffs say this was not about money. This was purely about the principle. Allison. Scott, and I, I realize that there are still more legal turns to go on this, but how precedent setting is this for other countries? Let's say the US, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the laws are going to be different everywhere. In California, for instance, they just had a, a referendum on this issue, which basically allowed these companies to be exempted from laws that California had made. So legally, probably doesn't make a, that big of a difference, but it certainly is a lot of momentum for these unions of drivers or these groups of drivers who have been pushing for changes to the gig economy to make sure that they are protected in some way. And so uh, when it comes to, to, to momentum and, and having uh, some energy in your corner, well, these drivers certainly have that at, at this point. And perhaps other countries, we may see similar challenges in other countries as a result, Allison. Okay, Scott McClellan, great reporting. Thank you. Twilio wants to help with vaccine rollout. I'm going to be speaking with the CFO of the cloud communications company next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. Stock in Twilio hit an all-time high on Thursday after the cloud communications company reported a 65% surge in revenue last quarter. Customers use the platform to place phone calls, send and receive texts, and facilitate other forms of digital engagement. As U.S. states and healthcare providers grapple with mass vaccine rollouts, Twilio says its tools can help and are already in use in Texas, Maine, and Michigan. Joining me now is Kazema Ship-Chandler. He's the Chief Financial Officer at Twilio. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. So I know you reported blowout earnings, and we'll get to that in just a minute, because I want to talk about vaccines first of all. I want to hear you know, how Twilio is helping you know, getting the vaccine into arms as it's partnering across uh, the global health ecosystem to get these vaccines to people, especially with you know, scheduling issues, never mind uh, the cancellations because of weather, especially with what's, let's say, happening in Texas. Well, I think Texas is actually a great example because more than ever, having robust communications and ensuring that citizens have an opportunity to, for outreach from various stake owners like state and local officials to make sure that they're okay on the one hand, especially with what citizens are going through right now and our hearts certainly go out to them. But more specific to your question as it relates to vaccines, what we're doing right now for the state of Texas is helping ensure that citizens are aware of when vaccines are available, that they can schedule their appointments appropriately, and that they're getting the appropriate alerts to make sure that they take their vaccines on time. Okay, your, your earnings came out a couple of days ago, jaws dropped because they were so good. Uh, it really shows how your company has been able to flourish during the pandemic. Yeah, we're excited about our earnings, obviously. It was off of the back of broad-based strength across our customer base. I would say certainly 
we saw tremendous amounts of digital acceleration in a variety of industries that I think had really been wanting to digitally transform. I'd specifically point to areas like healthcare, and vaccines are certainly a part of that, but so is you know things like contact tracing and even just being able to contact your physician through primary care, e-commerce, certainly, you know, every one of us in our daily lives is encountering various kinds of e-commerce experiences every day. But even education and, and philanthropy even are uh, among the use cases that really accelerated some of our results last year. How permanent do you think is this shift to digital engagement? I think it's quite permanent. I think what we saw during the midst of the pandemic was that effectively, there was an acceleration of about six or so years of digital transformation initiatives. But now that we're here, our research, and I think a lot of external research is showing that, in fact, consumers are probably not gonna go back. And if you look at certain industries and just how good and robust the experiences have been from a consumer perspective, things like an online e-commerce engagement or things like an online healthcare engagement are very much here to stay and are in fact really high return experiences for consumers. And from the business side, do you think that there's enough money on the business side for them to go ahead and make this digital transformation that they're sort of being forced into at this point? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, obviously the pandemic accelerated a lot of these things. I mean, as soon as every one of us was working from home, obviously um, these things had to be turned on, but I, with with a certain amount of urgency. But I think now that we're here, uh, the dollars are there, and I think CTOs, CIOs are seeing more funding than ever from the C-suite. And digital transformation was always a top of mind initiative, and now all of the dollars are there to fund it and make sure that uh, companies are able to thrive. All right, Kozema Shipchandler, Chief Financial Officer at Twilio, thanks for your time today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. NASA's Mars rover safely landing on the red planet after seven minutes of terror. That story coming up next. Those who don't want to receive a vaccine who work in the Vatican may want to think twice. The city-state's governor says everyone must be inoculated or risk losing their jobs. CNN's Delia Gallagher, Gallagher explains. The Vatican has told its employees if they don't get vaccinated for COVID-19, they risk losing their jobs. A decree from the governor of the Vatican City State, Cardinal Giuseppe Bertello, calls vaccinations a responsible decision and says that those employees who refuse without a legitimate health reason may be transferred or have their contract terminated. Now, Pope Francis is a big proponent of vaccinations for COVID-19. He himself has been vaccinated and he has called it an ethical choice. The Vatican has about four and a half thousand employees and they began vaccinations for employees and their families on January 13th. And since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the Vatican has reported 27 cases of coronavirus. Most of those occurred amongst the Swiss guards who live together in barracks inside the Vatican walls. Delia Gallagher, CNN, Rome. 
You have to hand it to Percy. I know what you're thinking, who's Percy? Well, that's the nickname NASA scientists gave, uh, have given Perseverance, the rover that just wowed the world with its nail-biting arrival on Mars. Percy is bristling with instruments other rovers never had, as it tries to tell us whether life once existed on our closest planetary neighbor. Our Michael Holmes has more. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars. Cheers from NASA's control room as the U.S. Space Agency lands its most daring mission yet on the Red Planet. What an amazing day. What an amazing team to work through all the adversity um, that goes and all the challenges that go with landing a rover on Mars, plus the challenges of COVID and, and just an amazing accomplishment. Moments after touchdown, the Perseverance rover transmits its first images from the landing site, Jezero Crater, once a Martian lake nearly four billion years ago. Perseverance now embarks on a mission with a packed agenda for the next few years. The rover will be searching for signs of ancient life on Mars while also preparing for human life to one day arrive. It will also collect rock samples that hopefully return to Earth for the very first time. This two-year mission, unlike any other, made possible by discoveries from NASA's four other rovers on Mars. Our journey has been from following the water to seeing whether this planet was habitable to finding complex chemicals. And now we're at the advent of an entirely new phase returning samples, an aspirational goal that has been with the science community for decades. Perseverance also promises new perspectives on the Red Planet. The rover's microphones can share the first recordings of sound on Mars, and its 23 cameras offer better views of the surface than ever seen before. Also along for the ride a drone-sized helicopter named Ingenuity will be the first to attempt flight on another planet. The new technology may help direct the Perseverance rover or even be a scout for future probes. As NASA's latest mission explores new frontiers on Mars, an unprecedented quest begins. Michael Holmes, CNN. Can't wait to see what Percy discovers. And Perseverance pays off in the stock market, too. U.S. stocks have opened higher this Friday and remain near records despite rising bond yields and concerns that stocks are overvalued. Financials are the best performers on the S&P right now. Chip equipment maker Applied Materials is the biggest gainer on the Nasdaq, up more than 7 percent after posting strong fourth quarter results. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Stay safe and have a great weekend. See you soon. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 